That's right. That's, uh, that's how the next verse begins. Lou, well done. Bonus points. Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. I'm glad you're here. The Lord is glad you're here. If you would grab your Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 4. We continue to work through the book of 1 John, a book which is about assurance. It assures us of our salvation. It assures us that we are the children of God. And it assures us that God has loved us with an incredible love. Let us read verses 7 through 12 of 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4, beginning in verse 7, Hear now the word of the true and living God. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His unique Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another... God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. Let us pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we pray that through Your Word we would see clearly the great love with which You've loved us, and how that love ought to motivate us to love one another, so that as we love one another, and your love is perfected in us. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. I've been, in recent years, introducing my sons to that very modern contemporary band, the Beatles. The Beatles, of course, have that song, All You Need Is Love. bum ba da da dum all you need is love. When they played that back in June of 1967, more than 400 million people in 26 countries watched via satellite as they performed that song. What they wanted to do, they'd been asked to do, was to write a song and perform a song that could be understood by the maximum number of people, people from all different nations. And so they wrote, all you need is love. I think that, that lyric is incorrect, but I believe, and I, I believe I understand why they would sing that, and, and why people would latch on to all you need is love. It's because our, our hearts cry out for love. The, the whole world seems to cry out for it. I think it's close to the truth. And if I could 
hone this down just a little bit and, and get closer and, and even uh, home in on, on what it is that we need, what we need is not just love, what we all need is the God who is love. And even here in this text, we can, we can <clears throat> get even more precise, and that is what we really need is Jesus who's been sent by the God who is love. In order to be connected to that love, even the love of God, we must be connected to Christ. This passage, the entire passage, is <clears throat> deeply Trinitarian. As you go through verses 7 through 21, what you see is God the Father, <clears throat> excuse me, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That what we see is God, first of all, sending His Son, and then we see God giving His Spirit. And we could even say it this way, that God sent God to be the propitiation for our sins. And then God sends God to live in our hearts and abide in us. This is the nature of the triune God in these verses. It's His work as well. What we see in verses 7 and 8 is that love has its origin in God. Beloved. John begins here. This is again a term of endearment. John has used it several times already in this epistle. John loves these brothers and sisters. And that's significant because he's going to exhort these brothers and sisters to love one another. And there may even be a, a bit of a play on words here. Beloved, love one another. That this is intentional and by design. Beloved, let us love one another. This command to love one another, by my count, shows up about 14 times in our New Testament. You know, if God says something once, it's important. If He says it twice, it's really important. If God says it 14 times in our New Testament, well, I guess that just means He knows that we're prone to forget the things that are really, really important. And we need to be reminded that you need to love one another. You need to love the church. You need to love your brothers and sisters. And this pretty well puts to rest these notions that are kind of contemporary about, you know, I, I love God, I love Jesus, but the church, eh. you know, I, it's just a bunch of imperfect people down there anyway. Okay, well, come show us how to do it. Come, come join us and, and really show us what it means to be a Christian. The reality is, that in the church, there are no perfect people allowed. We, we are a community of imperfect people who have fallen short of the glory of God, and we know that and we acknowledge that. And why it's so important that we love one another in spite of our, far, our fault, our shortcomings, and all the things that get in the way, all of our sin. Let us love one another. By the way, those references, if you want them, John 13, verse 34, 
15, verse 12, also verse 17. Romans 12, verse 10, 13, and verse 8. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9. 1 Peter 1, verse 22, also chapter 4, verse 8. 1 John 3, verse 11, verse 23, 4, verse 7, verse 11, verse 12, and 2 John, verse 5. Oh, it's very important. Let us love one another for, let me tell you why, love is from God. Now, you ought to make this connection here. Love is from God. That phrase, from God, we saw it last week. That it's back in verse 6, we are from God. And it's also in verse 4, you are from God. And that there are, there are also spirits that are from God. From God, from God, from God. And now here, love is from God. Again, this has to do with or, the origin of love. It originates in God. God is the source. He's the author of love. And therefore, he gets to define love. And that there are some loves that he's actually opposed to. Not all love is love, contrary to popular belief. You hear that sometimes. Love is love. No, it's not. No, it's not. Not according to God. And since he is the originator and source of love, he gets to define what love is. Love is from God. Whoever loves, and again, the context here is loving one another, loving the church. And, and the, the force of this is the one loving. It's a present tense thing. Again, showing us love is a verb. It's an action that is uh, required of us. The one loving presently, right now, loving his brothers and sisters, has been born of God. Now, this is what is particularly fascinating is we talked about being born of God. It, at one point in the past, you were born of God, birthed of the Father, and you stand begotten of God. That's the force of what John is saying here. You don't do this yourself, by the way. It is a passive voice verb. It is God who begets us. It is God that does the born-again stuff. So you can't demand it. But then there are, there are consequences as a result of that birth, that new birth, that being born again, born of above, born of God. And it is this, you will love your brothers and sisters. That loving others, loving your brothers and sisters, that is evidence that you have been born of God. And so if you are not loving the church, if you don't love your brothers and sisters, oh, what does that say about your, your birth? The one who's been born of God is the one who is loving his brothers and sisters. Also, John goes on here, it's not only evidence that you've been born of God, it's also evidence that you know God. Because if you know God, you know that God is love. And that what he desires of his children is that they love one another. This is also a present tense thing. You keep on knowing God. And in fact, there's a, a sense in which loving your brothers and sisters and knowing God is actually contingent upon whether or not you've been born of God. If you've not been born of God, you don't know God. And you don't love the church. Because that new birth is absent. 
anyone who does not, uh, does not love does not know God because God is love. That's the, this is John rounding out the argument here in verse 8. And in fact, the force of this is uh, significant. Anyone who does not love, it's as if you have never known God. That's, that's the force. Remember, John, the apostle of love, telling it like it is, telling it straight. Again, this isn't my opinion. This is Holy Spirit-given, inspired text. And we also need to emphasize here, God is love, right? God is love. Uh, for the original audience, this would have been very significant, especially the context in which they were living. I've been talking about how you had these early roots of what would become full-blown Gnosticism, kind of this proto-Gnostic flavor that uh, was uh, running around in John's day. And, and, and the Gnostic, the, the philosopher of their day, could get behind, God is light. Yeah, sure. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, these, these light beings, these aeons and all that. They could get behind, say, what John writes found on the lips of Jesus back in John 4, that God is spirit. Yeah, these are spiritual beings. But what they could not get behind was this, God is love. God is love? No, that's, uh, no, he's, this is something that was foreign to the philosophy And that's why John hammers this home so significantly. God is love. He's not like what these guys out here running around saying that they had this con close encounter with the divine kind and all that. Are those aeons? Are they love? No. Sounds like you've got an idol on your hand there. Sounds like you've got a false god on your hand there. That's not the true God. God is love. This speaks to a quality of God's character, that, that God is this particular aspect, and it's, it's part of His essential character and nature. And we need to be careful here and make sure that we don't get it twisted. And there are some, even Christians, who get it twisted here. And they will say things like, God is love and love is God. Love is God, that's idolatry. You've made love your idol. And what ends up happening when love is your idol is you start sacrificing all kinds of things to that God, all under the banner of love. No, this is not interchangeable. Kind of like, you know, um, if I were to say grass is green, it would be erroneous to then turn around and say, well, green is grass, right? That's, that's, that's ridiculous. That's a faulty, logical conclusion. And in the same way, God is love, but at the same time, it does not equate to love is God. Again, that is idolatry. Once again, this shows us that love is rooted in God's essential nature. It's rooted in who He is. And it is God's love that informs our love. And John is really going to hammer this home the deeper we get into this text. Let me just pause here and say that as a point of application, we can wrap ourselves in all the trappings of religiosity, but if we do not have love, well, what is it Paul says over in 
1 Corinthians chapter 13. Just take a peek over there. Keep your finger there in John chapter 4. And in 1 Corinthians 13, you know this text, right? Verses 4, 5, 6, 7, the first part of 8. We read those at weddings and all that, yes? What about those first three verses? Listen closely. Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Why, he'll conclude that chapter by talking about these three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Because right now we need faith, but faith will give way to sight. Right now we hope, but when we get there, hope, the confident expectation, has been accomplished and realized and fulfilled. But love, love goes on into eternity because it's ultimately, again, rooted in God's core nature. Without love, all of our religiosity is ultimately hollow, it is vain, it is empty. Love not only for one another, but love for God, yes? Love for God must be primary, and it is out of our love for God that then our love for one another is also informed. Love is a sign that we've truly been born of God, that we truly know God. And when we love one another as we should, which Christ gave us the measure, by the way, First John, excuse me, John, Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 34, even as I have loved you, Jesus says. So as Christ has loved us, and that's a sacrificial kind of love, we also ought to love one another to the fullest. And when we do that, well, as we see, God's love will be perfected in us. That's the flow of John's argument here. We'll see that God truly does live within us. He abides in us when we are loving in the way that God desires. Again, vitally important, not only then, but today. To truly experience the love that God has for us, truly know God, means that we also must love one another. One writer put it this way, a wicked man may have baptism, he may have prophecy, he may receive the sacrament of the body and blood of Christ. All of these things a wicked man may have, but no wicked man can have love. And so we see, again, loving others, the evidence of it. Uh, it is evidence of our parentage. It's evidence of our knowledge of God. But then John really tamps this down in verses 9 and 10. And he says, you want to you see love in action? You want to know true love? Well, love is seen in the atoning death of the Son. In this, verse 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. It was clearly seen in our midst that God sent His unique Son. Your translation may say only begotten. That's okay. It, it emphasizes the uniqueness of Jesus while also recognizing that God does have other sons and daughters, other children. Well, God has other children that He has granted new birth to. There's one son that is unique among all of them, and that's Jesus. 
He sent His unique Son into the world so that we might live through Him. This is the purpose of Jesus coming in the world. Why did my Savior come to earth? We sing that song, right? Right here is a purpose statement. He came so that we might live. God sent His Son so that we might have life and have it abundantly. Isn't that what Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 10? I've come, they may have life and have it abundantly. Here's the, the heart of the gospel, the heart of the love of God. It was put on display in the sending of the Son into the world. This could serve even as a, a summary of John's entire gospel. The Father sent the Son into the world. Also, the way this is written, God sent His only Son. He sent, which means the Son came, but there are lasting and permanent effects as a result of the mission and ministry of Christ in this world. He came so that we might live, and that is eternal life. As we'll see when we get to chapter 5, we currently have that eternal life, but there is more to be realized, more in store, when it will be finally and fully realized at the end of time. And so, yes, He came so that we might live, we might have life. I do also want to emphasize this, one writer put it this way, that the New Testament is clear. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. And we know John 3.16, God so loved the world. Here in John, 1 John chapter 4, is God so loved us. Now just sit with that for a moment. God so loved us, brothers and sisters. He so loved you. He so loved me. That indeed He sent Jesus so that we might have life. And it is only through the Son that we can have that life. No, there's no other source for this eternal life. You cannot find it anywhere else. It's only in the Son. John is also very specific here. He sent the Son, the unique one, just so that there's no mistaking which Jesus he's talking about. He goes further in verse 10. In this is love. Again, still talking about the atoning work of Jesus in this world. In this is love. Not that we loved God, there it is, but that He loved us. Whose love is first? Whose love is primary in this? It's God's love. God loved us. And as a result of His love for us, He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Way back in chapter 2, we talked about propitiation, spent a bit of time exploring that big Bible word, that $5 word in Scripture. And what it means is this. It is the sacrifice that is necessary to turn away the wrath of God that is due us for our sins. That in the work of Jesus on the cross, God, the Son, is satisfying God's own wrath for our sins. This is something we could never accomplish. We don't have the resources to do this. Only God 
can satisfy his own wrath for sin, and he does fully. He exhausts his wrath for our sins in Jesus on the cross. One writer put it this way, it is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated, God himself who in holy love undertook to do the propitiation, and God himself who in the person of his Son died for the propitiation of our sins. Thus God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it his own self in his own Son when he took our place and died for us. It's all of God. There is nothing that we could do to turn away the wrath of God, to satisfy His wrath for our sins. The only thing we contributed to this whole endeavor is our sins. And in spite of our sins, and you know the sins that you've sinned, just like I know the sins I've sinned. I know how I've broken the heart of God. And yet, He still loved me. And He still loved you. In spite of our sins, He sent His Son to be propitiation for our sins. It is Christ on the cross who is the means of the forgiveness of our sins. It is by His blood that all of our sins are washed away, forgiven. It is by His blood that we are redeemed. It is by His blood that we, well, we have the propitiation for our sins. Very specific, by the way. All of our sins are laid upon Christ, and He endures the full fury of the Father on our behalf. He does it willingly. He came of His own volition. He sent absolutely, but He was willing to come. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. By the way, that puts to death all of, this, uh, all of these false ideas about somehow the cross is cosmic child abuse. This is God satisfying God's own wrath on the cross for us and for our sins. It is out of this great love with which God has loved us that we are then exhorted in verses 11 and 12 to love one another. But in these verses, what we see is that God's love is perfected in us when we love one another. Verse 11, beloved, there it is again, that term of endearment. John loves these brothers and sisters. He's fulfilling the command to love one another. Beloved, if, you know, it can be translated that way, but there's no question about this. There, there's, this isn't conditional, it's a matter of history, that indeed God so loved us. And so it can also be translated, since God so loved us. It's a matter of fact. Do you wonder if God loves you? Look no further than the cross. Because in the cross we see that God indeed so loved us. He loved us in this way. And since it is the case that God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's not just a command, there's an oughtness to it. As though there is a debt that we owe that we can never repay, but it's as if I'm, I'm attempting to fulfill that obligation and satisfy that debt and pay it in full, though I know I can't, but I'm going to try. And 
We also ought to love one another. Again, it's something that we owe one another. And it's rooted in the fact God so loved us that God sent His Son to die for us. That God sent His Son on a death mission so that we might live. And living, we might love one another. And so when we come together and we love on one another as we do during Sunday mornings, we're fulfilling this. And when you leave here and, and, and you, you take one another to lunch, you go out and, and you enjoy one another's company and you love one another there, you're fulfilling this to man. And when you get together, this is more than just a Sunday thing, you understand? When you get together for your small group Bible studies Tuesday evenings or your Bible studies on Wednesday mornings or, or when you just get together to, to sit and visit with one another, when you take one another to your doctor's appointments that you have to get to, when you show up and bring someone food when they're sick or they've just had surgery, when you show up at the hospital to visit your brother, your sister, this is how you love one another. Again, we, we can come together and we can rub shoulders together like so many marbles in a sack. But we really accomplish nothing if we do that. If you show up late and leave before the last amen is said, are we really loving one another as we ought? Only you can answer that, right? In your own heart of hearts. I love... Uh, every Sunday being the last one out the door. Shutting this place down, as it were. And seeing all the good fellowship and enjoying all the rich love that we have for one another. We also ought to love one another. And so we do. And let me exhort us to continue to, doing the, to do this all the more. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. God is emphatic here. God, no one has ever seen. That's the way John wrote it. And by the way, uh, just a, a brief aside, you know, I think it was last Sunday morning during our Bible class, we had a bit of a discussion about our Jehovah's Witness friends. And, and I mentioned how in their New World Translation in John 1, 1, it says that in the beginning was God. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, little g. And they translate it there because they talk about the... Uh, Anarthrus noun that's there. That is, there's a noun without a definite article. It was the typical way that they talked about God back then. They would say, the God. We don't do that, but we understand the concept of capital G God. Well, our Jehovah's Witness friends say it should be translated a God because there's no definite article. And there's all kinds of Greek grammar rules that that just simply ignores. But if you go down just a bit further, guess what John writes in John 1 and verse 18? Well, it's actually a parallel statement to what he writes here in verse 12. No one has ever seen God. And guess how he writes it there? The same way he writes it here, without the definite article attached to God. There's no definite article here in verse 12 attached to God. 
But guess how your Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Jehovah's Witness friends translate John 1 verse 18 and 1 John 4 and verse 12. They don't translate it a God. Their, t- their text doesn't say no one has ever seen a God, little g. They translate it as capital G. Why? Now, that's a good question that I have yet to get a good answer to. But it just goes to show that when we create our system and then go looking to prove that from Scripture, we're going to do a lot of problems. And we fail to be consistent in even the work of translation. There are many examples of that, but that's just a brief aside. No one has ever seen God. God in His essence. God in His true nature. You you can't survive and see God as He is. When we get our new resurrection body and we all get to heaven, guess what? We will see Him. John's already mentioned that earlier in chapter 3. But, notice this. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another... God abides in us. And there's a lot more to be said about this because we'll pick this up next week because God has given us His Spirit. And in the same way that He sent His Son, He's given His Spirit. And again, we'll explore that more next week. But just, wow, God, He dwells in us. He lives in us. He has determined to take up residence in us frail creatures of dust and feeble as frail with all of our shortcomings and, again, all the things that we know about, we don't talk about with other people, right? But in our heart of hearts, we know. And yet God still abides in us. We shouldn't overlook the fact that this is a corporate thing here. He abides in us collectively. But I think it's also applicable. This is scalable. He, uh, he dwells in the individual. And we have clear teaching on this elsewhere. First John, excuse me, First Corinthians chapter three, verse sixteen, also chapter six and verses nineteen and twenty. Well, God has decided to take up residence in the believer and in the believing body. But notice this, his love is perfected in us. We don't do this ourselves. It is God who brings the completion of his love about in us. He perfects it in us. It is brought to maturity. And I believe this is akin to what we see elsewhere in Scripture where we are transformed, we're changed more and more. That God continues to bring this perfection about. That it is an ongoing progressive thing. That more and more uh, He brings His love to maturity within the body. Within us. And I think we understand this. The longer that we're Christians, the longer you've been a Christian... You didn't stop growing, shouldn't have anyway, right? That you have grown more and more in your Christian walk and in your love that you have for the church. I think we could probably go around the room here and testify it hasn't all been peaches and roses and all of that, yes? And sometimes it's hard to love the church. That sometimes there are things that are done to us even in the context of church. They're not a lot of fun. That uh, sometimes it's brought on us by our own doing. Sometimes we didn't deserve it. But as we see here, it ought to be the case that wild dogs could not drag us away. Or wild horses if you're a Stones fan, right? Rolling Stones? No? Okay. Well, we don't listen to that devil music anyway, right? (coughs) 
Wild dogs, wild horses could not drag us away from this fellowship. Because we understand there's something deeper. There's a reality that is spiritual, that, that's all around us, and we don't see it with our eyes, but we know it's there. And so, yes, even though the body is imperfect because it's composed of imperfect people, we still love one another. And God is at work in that. All you need is love. Well, John, Paul, George, Ringo got close. But the reality is, again, we need the God who is love, who demonstrated and manifested that love in history by sending his son to die on the cross in our place for our sins. That is the supreme demonstration and manifestation of the love of God. And it is what motivates us and drives our love for one another. Let us come to this in prayer. We need you, Father, because we we know that no good thing dwells in us, that the flesh and the world and the devil are constantly at us to draw us away from you, from Christ, from the church. We pray, Father, that we, we would be people who are first lovable and that in turn seek to love our brothers and our sisters as we ought to. And that you would be at work within us and among us to bring about the perfection and the completion of your love. That we would grow to the full measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ and the love that we have for one another. And so we do need your help in this. Help us, O oh helper, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.